Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining Medaco Talks, our series of live conversations with the people shaping and making the future of digital assets. Just a note before we start to say that the next episode of Medaco Talks will be on the 19th of February at 3 p.m. CET with Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Today, we have a special one-hour edition as compared to the traditional 30 minutes edition with a special guest. Uh, we welcome Francisco Fernandez, who is the founder and former chairman of Avaloc, a Swiss fintech company that was sold at the end of last year for over 2 billion. Francisco, welcome to the show. And uh, I remember five years ago when we first met, I think it was at a startup event and uh, we started discussing and you told me that uh, although you were in the jury of multiple startups trying to pitch their future dream, dream companies, you still consider yourself being an entrepreneur and made an Avaloc being a startup. Do you still think that uh, it's the case? Was it really the case or were you somehow exaggerating out of, uh, out of uh, openness to the startups you were evaluating. Yeah, thank you very much, Adrian. Uh, indeed, I try as good as I can, even getting older to stay fresh and young in the mindset. And I love to collaborate and work uh, with young talents. Um, then I also must say that uh, beside Avalok, um, I'm invested and co-founded uh, almost a, a dozen of uh, uh, other companies in different maturity stages. Some of them are bloody startups as well, you know, being a year old or so. Uh, so I know how it feels to run a 3,000 uh, people company as well as uh, a startup starting with three uh, three to five uh, people. So uh, it's still my daily business to be in both worlds at the same time. No, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And it also needless to say that you were one of the first uh, software banking company to get interested in cryptocurrencies. Uh, I suppose that uh, given the challenge that is, it is still today in 2021 to speak with banks about cryptos, which still has this perception of being the money for criminals or you know, the dark web. Um, how is it that you saw this coming five, six years ago, if not more? And uh, can you tell us a, a few words about how you push this to, to Avaloc and to your potential other investments? Um, you know, the <clears throat> nice thing is that I read about similar concepts already uh, 30 years ago when I was studying. Uh, so it's not actually as brand new or uh, as we might think, you know, when Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is, came up 10 years ago with that new blockchain idea, it sounded already familiar to me. This type of decentralized uh, network type of uh, uh, databases, if you want to say so, or, or ledgers. Um, uh, so I remember that. And when I downloaded Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, uh, I said, oh, wow, this is really a, a fantastic concept. And with my uh, long background in finance, I immediately also, you know, went into the philosophically um, topic of what actually is money? What is a currency? And that fascinated me so much that uh, I wanted to get acquainted with these technologies. But even more, it triggered my brain to say, what could you do with it? Because actually it's a base technology. The first use case of blockchain uh, uh, was the cryptocurrencies, but I immediately 
started to think about uh, other applications of what you can do uh, with these, you know, uh, blockchain systems, decentralized governance, um, you know, taking away probably some powers of centralized institutions and make it a fair market-driven system. Uh, I immediately had ideas um, uh, of, of, of how to use that uh, technology in many fold uh, ways. Uh, today, when I look at the world, um, I must say I see three major pillars of how the technology can be used. One is uh, gaining efficiency in settling, moving, storing value. Um, so it's an efficiency play. Um, the other thing is it is kind of certificating things, certificates, or you can also call it contracts that are, you know, approved, secure. Uh, and uh, the third thing is looking at the world's wealth with 400 trillion wealth that exists on the planet, almost half of it is unbank uh, what I call unbankable assets. Talking about, to a certain extent, real estate, which is the largest asset class in the world, but also art, classic cars, diamonds, uh, IP rights, mm. mus music rights, and other um, uh, type of assets or values that escape, actually, the regulated banking system. And I think blockchain uh, and digital assets is an opportunity to take the other half of the planet. We're talking about the 200 trillion opportunity and make them, uh, you know, efficient, bankable assets with a price transparency, a liquidity and the democratization of the as access to these type of assets, which is not the case today. So these type of assets, because they tend to be expensive and not fractionized, not tokenized, they tend to be accessible only to the rich or to large institutions. And mm -hmm. it's also a democratization effect uh, you can gain uh, through tokenizing these type of asset classes. So this is what was going uh, through my mind uh, through the last couple of years. And then as an entrepreneur, instead of just talking about or only think it, as an entrepreneur, if you can think it, you can do it. So then I go to action and try to, you know, uh, bring uh, contrib my contribution to it and try to realize some of these ideas and make it happen, make it reality. And, and Francisco, what do you think are the frictions today? Because you speak about these 400 trillion markets that could be tokenized in the future. Uh, but maybe one of the first things that could be tokenized was Avalok a few years ago. And if I had <laughs> wanted to invest in your company, I would have to, to, to have a name of a large private equity fund, you know, the, like the ones that invested in Avalok. So why did you think about tokenizing Avalok? What would have been the frictions? And do you think we are about to solve this friction so that this dream can become a reality? Yeah. So indeed, I did think of it. Uh, but the size of Avalok, uh, you know, being a, a, an over two billion uh, asset, the markets are not mature for that uh, uh, type of size to be tokenized. We have uh, seen in early days the ICOs um, have a little bit burned the reputation of these markets, of these tokenizations, because it was a means to finance uh, an idea, a premature or very early idea. And, um, you know, many investors in tokens have lost money because it was too premature to um, take them public through ICOs in, in, instead of IPOs. 
um, uh, what I'm doing now is taking real assets that are undoubtable there and that can be valued to tokenize them, making uh, fractions of it and try to start creating the liquidity which is missing in these markets. I mean, Bitcoin is the only, let's say, tokenized assets who slowly, you know, having 800 billion out there, uh, gets the liquidity that is necessary to have a fair price uh, for, for, for an underlying asset. So the size of Avalok was all, uh, already too big to take the risk to, to, to try to, to, to ICO it. But eventually, uh, you know, it's a matter of time until, um, uh, you know, these, um, uh, the, the second more mature ICO wave will kick in and uh, be able to also um, uh, take larger assets public. Hmm. That's interesting. And, you know, you're speaking about liquidity. We have actually a question from one of our editors about liquidity. Do you think that we need banks? So how do we create liquidity in this market? Is it a, an ecosystem play? Uh, is it banks that need to move? Can we actually, if I ask you a provocative question, do we actually need banks uh, at all in this new ecosystem of this digital assets? Or can we think about a future where banks become irrelevant? Um I come back to the statement of uh, uh, Bill Gates that said once that uh, banking is essential, banks are not. Um, so I think to, to have banking services is a need. Financial markets are mature markets and I think uh, there's a need to regulate that markets um, uh, one or the other way. And um, Therefore, I think that banks will play a role, but what role they play depends on how they embrace these technologies, um, in what direction the, regulate, uh, the regulation is moving. Um, but, you know, it's a trust business. If you want to, um, you know, um, invest or put somewhere $3,000, you might give it to Revolut. If you want to uh, invest $300 million, you probably don't give it to Revolut. So you <laughs> want to have a trusted institution, you know, that's uh, heavily, strictly regulated, um, uh, and therefore banks have still their role. Having said that, the whole uh, industry is under big change and, and potentially also disruption. Uh, some institutions might, um, you know, make their way, some might not uh, survive it. So let's see, let's see what happens. And if you look at DeFi, this decentralized finance, the question is how will the ecosystem of banking or finance look like uh, in, in a centralized way where much more players can disseminate or dis disaggregate um, uh, uh, the value chain, not putting an end-to-end -end value chain in one big dinosaur, uh, which tend to be inflexible, uh, governance structures, they tend to be slow. And, you know, in a, in a decentralized world, uh, in an internet era, um, the architecture of the financial ecosystem might look quite differently in 10 years. Mm. And, you know, you speak about regulations and uh, uh, your point is that regulation is needed to provide some trust, as I, as I understand. Now, it is kind of antithetic to the decentralized finance padding, which is that you actually don't need uh, regulators, because regulators provide some inherent level of centralization. You know, by definition, the regulator is centralized. It's generally for a specific country or a specific jurisdiction. Do you think that we could see a future where this kind of regulation itself is also decentralized and embedded in some form of smart contract or 
decentralized interaction where, in fact, this, this security that you get from the regulator and the government today, you may get it out of technology itself without having to trust this centralized party. Yeah, it's funny <clears throat> that you say regulation is centralized. You could also say regulation is very decentralized because if I look at Europe today, we try to centralize the gov uh, governance of Europe in the European Union and you see the Brexit and you see the struggles uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, um, regulation is actually very national because it's about protecting uh, your people. And I don't think that um, French regulation or French government or French policy cares too much about how to regulate the German bank, etc. So you have some tendencies to try to centralize, but there are forces because, you know, in Europe, you have different languages, different cultures per country. Uh, and, 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 and you see actually a decentralization uh, because a nationalization is a decentralization of, of governance. So, and while, while saying that in decentralized finance with smart contracts, what the internet actually wants is a worldwide global regulation. So even mm. if we are thinking about blockchain being a decentralized ledger, actually it's the opposite. It's a centralized ledger by having one blockchain governing the whole planet, independent of geography. So actually, if you look at what you have today, every bank in the traditional banks have its own ledger within the bank on premise, while blockchains try to centralize that onto one system. So actually I see blockchain as centralized and not decentralized, <laughs> you know, in, in, in that uh, uh, context. Of course, the, the, the governance is decentralized by saying you have hundreds of thousands or millions of nodes, but it's one system with one. Yeah, you, centralize, you centralize information or on, on a decentralized platform. That's, that's an absolutely, interesting absolutely. absolutely. This, this is what it's all about. So, of course, um, uh, uh, as, as, as IT people, as software guys, you would like to see a world with one currency, with one worldwide ledger, potentially this ledger technology incorporated into the internet infrastructure because the internet is centralized, it's one place, but it doesn't belong to anybody. So it's decentralized governance, a decentralized platform, but actually a centralized, a central concept for the world. This is what we are dreaming of, but it's a long journey to get there. But I would, I would like to make a bet saying that, you know, in 10 to 15 years, uh, storage of value, transferring of value in a secure way should be part of the planet's infrastructure like the internet. Absolutely. And, and what do you think is the impact for existing system, existing currencies, dollar, Swiss franc, euro? Do you think that uh, these new technologies and the various initiatives about stable coins and tokenization may disrupt the way we work with payments? And would I be, you know, if I give you an example, would I be able to buy a car paying with a part of a Picasso painting, you know, I would pay you with a Picasso painting, which, which is tokenized to buy a car. Would, will, will I be able to do that in the future? Yeah, um, I think both things will coexist. I don't think that with technology, we will go back to a barter system where you say, you give me a Picasso, uh, I give you a Ferrari <laughs> or something like that. Um, I, I think to have a representation of value, an abstract representation of value, which is a currency, 
will still exist. Um, will the currencies be national currencies? Probably yes, because the governance of these currencies are national. And as I say, policymakers of a nation don't care too much about what's outside their nation. Um, they need to protect their citizens. So governing their own currency um, uh, is protecting their citizens from you know, any uh, type of uh, financial system disruptions. So what I'm seeing today is that many policymakers as well as central bank, uh, central bankers are trying to embrace the technology and come up with uh, um, CBDCs, so central bank controlled coins, um, and they will coexist with something like Bitcoin, which is more a, rep a representation of like gold, which is not nas nationally regulated um, or, um, yeah. you know, like, um, like cash, because uh, policymakers, they try to gain control over all the citizens controlling all your cash flows. So policymakers would like to get rid of cash because cash is less transparent and, uh, uh, you know, politicians want to control the citizens. So I think this, this is uh, one of the raison d'etre or reason uh, uh, to exist for Bitcoin, that you can still, um, you know, uh, enjoy some privacy of what you do with your money um, with a cash-like type of digital asset. Having said that, um, uh, we will have to find solutions how to prevent, you know, uh, um, criminal misuse uh, of these currencies, uh, money laundering uh, uh, and other things. But we will find the planet will find solutions to that. Absolutely. You know, uh, if, if I come back to the original dogma of Bitcoin, it was created to decentralized finance to provide an alternative means of payment, alternative store of value, and uh, potentially to disrupt the banking industry saying, well, we don't need you, we can replace you. Uh, what I see today, and this is the question I would like to ask you, is that the more cryptocurrencies are adopted by regulated uh, intermediaries, let's say banks or custodians or you know, any kind of uh, regulated financial institutions on the markets, the more they are adopted, the more cryptos and Bitcoin become subject to heavy regulations, tracing, uh, travel rules, protocols that control where the money is coming from, where the money is going. And ultimately, I see a future where there could be two classes of Bitcoin. The Bitcoins, which are not whitelisted because they have lived outside of the banking sector and potentially they would be traded at a discount. And the Bitcoins, which have been whitelisted, you know, you've done your KYC, uh, it's, it's dealt with large banks on the system, which have the right market value, but potentially are less useful because you can't use them outside of the, of the regulated environments. Do you see such a binary future or is there potentially some sort of a, you know, spectrum of possibilities or something smoother between these two options? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, a crystal ball <laughs> unfortunately, Adrian. But again, uh, it's, it's a relatively new technology. It's only 10 years old and we are still uh, finding the right applications to it and the right regulations to it. Um, it could well be that you have a, a, a coin that works very much like gold, which is anonymous, which can, which has its use cases, and other, you know, regulated type of currency to use as a means of payment that are accepted by governments and law systems uh, and, and policymakers. So it could well be that you have both. Um, and and coming back to your partner, 
to your barter system. Uh, indeed, it's not uh, that unlikely that you have also use cases like these. You know, uh, let me give you an example. I'm an investor and co-founder in Inoterra, which is producing 500 tons of food, sustainably produced healthy food with a, an extremely decentralized or fragmented rural architecture in India, having 200 million farmer families. Now, originally, we were about to set up um, an NBFC, which is a, a kind of a non-bank non financial institution, and give microloans to these farmers. Now, because the banking license is delayed, I came up with a different idea. Why don't we buy 100,000 cows, uh, 100,000 cows with the right fodder, with the right vaccines, um, uh, with um, the right insurance and give you a cow package, you operate it and you pay me with milk. <laughs> Instead of giving the farmer a loan and, you know, acting financially, I can um, uh, um, uh, do it with real assets, exchanging real assets. I give you a cow, you give me milk. I can tokenize the milk and start trading the milk as produce but I can also refinance 100,000 cows by tokenizing cows and bring an 8% uh, percent, um, uh, cow token in the Western world where the interest rates are low. I give you a cow token with 4% interest rates and I can finance the herd. I paid in milk, I tokenize the milk and sell the milk again in, on another blockchain. So uh, it's actually exchanging cow tokens against milk tokens almost. So it's fantastic how, how many different uh, use cases uh, uh, you, you can implement with these new technologies. I'll tell you what, Francisco, um, I'm not sure our auditors would have expected that speaking about tokenization and fintech, we'd be speaking about cows and, and farming. That's, <laughs> that's a yeah. fantastic link. Um, we have a couple of questions here. Um, I'm just going to read one of them. Uh, so question comes from Ben. So Avalok is a rare example of a market leading European technology company. How does Francisco feel about the European tech ecosystem? Are we starting to catch up with the US and China? Yeah. So it's good that you uh, compare US with Europe and not with Switzerland. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, uh, because um, you know, you have to look at the size. Now, again, the architecture and the culture of US is completely different than Europe. Um, mm. You know, um, you have a different uh, harmonized system, language, culture in the US, while this is not at all the case in Europe. In every country, you have a different language, you have different ethnia, you have different histories. Uh, uh, so, so it's another type of architecture. Having said that, um, it all starts uh, with education. Uh, and and uh, I think the best European um, uh, universities like the ETH, Zurich, uh, the EPL in Lausanne, the, 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 the big um, uh, UK um, universities like Oxford, Cambridge and the likes, or the Max Planck Institute in Germany, they don't have to hide behind the, uh, uh, the renowned universities in the US. So we have a fantastic education system here. Um, now, uh, when you speak about currencies or banking, of course, the whole regulatory framework is much more um, uh, fragmented here in Europe. 
so uh, l'Europe n'existe pas, how the French say. <laughs> say. Um, uh, so th this, this is uh, an obstacle to overcome, um, but we have, um, you know, creative engineers. I, I mean, in, in um, uh, innovation rankings, uh, Switzerland always ranks amongst one, two, three. So we have um, the creativity and um, the engineering power. Um, what is worse in Europe is the culture of taking risks, financial risks. Um, in the Silicon Valley, you are not a good entrepreneur if you did not fail at least once and stand up again and continue um, you know, doing businesses. In Europe, if you fail once, nobody will give you any more money. So uh, that type of, of, of VC culture uh, and, and, and risk capital is much more uh, mature in the US. But it's slowly swapping over to Europe because you know, capital can travel very easily nowadays. And the internet can also transport knowledge and awareness about new ideas and companies across the globe. So I think um, I'm bullish therefore, you know, that uh, we will also learn how to deal with, with startups. To become an entrepreneur today is much easier than when I started um, Avalok 30 years ago. I had to visit 65 banks and investors to get 200,000 francs. So I can get this today in a minute uh, as a young entrepreneur. So. Um, I think things are moving in the right direction. We have a series of questions on demand for cryptocurrencies and uh, how, is, how this demand is shifting over time. Uh, what I mentioned is that we've seen a continuous growth of retail demand for uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and the various uh, hundreds of cryptocurrencies out there. Uh, but the demand from banking has been slow and volatile, I would argue. And uh, there have been early adopters, there have been followers or, or banks that qualify themselves as being smart followers. Do you see uh, demand growing now? And uh, if not, do you think that it's going to be a slow adoption or there could be some, some event that actually triggers a mass adoption in banking, whether it's regulatory something or something else? Um. I mean, you're absolutely right. Banks are, uh, in general, relatively slow adopters of, of, of technology. Um, first of all, because the regulation has to go with it and banks are not allowed, um, you know, to do things that are not regulated and great innovations are, per definition, not regulated because the regulator did not see it coming or did not foresee it. Uh, I mean, look at the large innovations when they invented the car. They came up with a red flag act. So they, the regulator forced the person to run in front of the car with a red flag warning that the car is coming. And this regulation, <laughs> this red flag act uh, stayed there for 30 years. So when they invented the music download, this was a company called Napster. I was an early investor in Napster. Uh, it was declared illegal later on. Apple took the idea up, legalized, and disrupted the music industry. And uh, now something similar is happening uh, in, in the crypto space. It's new, so the world has to get used to it, has to find um, the regulations, has to understand how to deal with it, and, uh, and then eventually you have the adoption coming. Of course, we as um, uh, technologists always think this is too slow, but that's you know, the time it takes to adopt a new technology first by finding the, the, 
what I call killer applications, good use cases, and then the world uh, learning how to how to deal with that in in, in, in mass markets. So we're getting there. And uh, let me give you an example. I think two years ago, I read the statement from Jamie Dimon um, uh, and um, you know the boss of uh, JP Morgan. And he said, I will fire everybody that touches uh, 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 cryptos. And today they have an expert center. They uh, issue their own coins. So mm -hmm. they made their minds up drastically. Um, also, if I look at Switzerland, you know, out of the 160 banks we serve, there are already uh, 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 five to six banks that are seriously engaging in this space. Um, uh, we have been implementing crypto capabilities and they plan to be able to um, serve their customers with these new uh, asset classes. So you will always find early adopters that jump on the train and then eventually you have uh, the followers and at the end you have the laggards. So uh, regulation is, is one thing that slows it down. The other thing that slows it down is that large institutions um, take much more time in making decisions. And this is a fundamental decision, you know, to self-disrupt yourself to a certain extent, to completely change the way you settle, you store assets, um, you know, uh, these are heavy de decisions and heavy decisions tend to be slow uh, in large organizations also because they are uh, listed and everything which is not uh, immediately contribute contributing to the EBITDA of the next two quarters tends to be deprioritized. Um, having said that, again, um, as more people adopt it, as uh, higher the pressure gets to jump on the train before the train, you know, uh, leaves the station and is uncatchable anymore. Absolutely. And, and how, how much would you say that, uh, using, uh, reading a question that we have in the, in the list, uh, that uh, the interconnectivity with the legacy platforms, the legacy payment systems, the, the, the existing infrastructure, how, how much do you think it is relevant today for adoption? You know, you, you're behind Avaloc. Avaloc uh, arguably is one of the leaders of the previous generation before digital assets and decentralization. In the last five years, you have caught up and you've been one of the first to move into cryptos and distributed ledgers. Do you think that uh, it is essential today for banks to adopt these new technologies that uh, it is as smooth as possible and essentially they behave almost the same way as traditional assets? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> what um, my bet or my take is that I try to look always try to look at things from the consumer from the market point of view so not thinking um, inside out but outside in um, if I put myself not with the hat of um, uh, the founder of Avalok or a bank but as an investor uh, as an investor and consumer I just don't want to miss the train. I mean, uh, if you see Ether having made 27,000% uh, uh, performance in the past five years, uh, this is just an opportunity I don't want to miss. And if you believe in these technologies, you want to participate in the game. Now, my wish was I could call my bank and say, please buy me some, uh, some Ether and some Bitcoins and some cow tokens. And their answer is, we can't do it. So I said, look, um, if I, as a consumer, have that wish and 
I'm not being served properly. Uh, I put the other hat on, you know, as as uh, as the founder of Avalok said, can I enable my bank, my banks, um, I serve to help them to serve me better as a consumer, and this is exactly the bet I did. So, I engage with experts on the crypto markets uh, like like Metaco, and said, could you help us that you know you guys grew up uh, with, uh, with blockchain and with these technologies and bring some knowledge across into Avalok. And could we make the Avalok uh, traditional banking system cope with these digital assets so that the banker doesn't see much of a difference between digital assets and fiat assets? Because the whole rest of you know, dealing with assets, the banks are expert in you know, how to monitor risk, how to do um, uh, uh, portfolio management, how to select the underlying assets behind the token. How do we bring things to market? I mean, an IPO is not that different to an ICO, if you want so. 90% of the expertise is in the bank. And just because they lack the last 10% of technology expertise, um, uh, you should not reinvent the whole thing, but say, can we leverage the 90% knowledge of the banks, add the technology piece of it, and enable the banks um, uh, to, to deal with digitalized assets um, alongside with fiat assets, because I think uh, there will be a coexistence for 10, 15 years of both type of assets, traditional assets and, and, and fiat assets. And that's, uh, uh, you know, what I decided to do, help the banks embrace this to be able to serve their customers, uh, their customers better. And clearly for uh, this technology to be adopted, you need to have uh, you need to have them in a way that they feel exactly the same as what you have today, uh, potentially with more features, but without having to learn about the underlying protocol. Put it this way today, when you send an email, whether this email is sent using TCP IP or UDP IP, you know, it's irrelevant. It just works, you know, and that's what matters. Uh, the same is true for cryptocurrencies and digital tokens, I would say. Now, yes. we have this question here about uh, about India. I know you have some uh, investments and activities in India, so I think this is an interesting point. With the recent proposal for crypto ban in India, with the upper house of Indian parliaments neglected, neglected as of now, do you think with the introduction of digital Indian rupee, crypto will get more traction in India? Uh, yeah, it's actually stunning to me that India was the first um, country of that size with 1.3 billion people that was able to roll out digital identities with the Aadhaar system, uh, uh, rolling out digital identities um, uh, linked to an account uh, uh, at, uh, at 1.3 billion people, but at the same time saying we don't touch cryptos. So on mm -hmm. one hand, they are you know, leapfrogging generations of passporting um, and, and are able to roll that out at, at light speed and, and then neglecting another interesting technology. Uh, so this is for me not consistent, but um, I think things are changing. I have uh, I, I read, of course, the ban that is, let's say, one or two years old. And in the last six months, I see that uh, loosening up uh, slowly. So I would I would not be surprised if India does the same as Jamie Diamond, completely turn around <laughs> and say, you know what? Um, uh, I go from forbidding to pushing and championing it 
Uh, I think India would be absolutely fantastic. I mean, they have such a large um, uh, software and IT industry, and they have a government that is able to roll out digital identity to 1.3 billion people, while we are discussing that in Switzerland, in the Western world since years or decades, and don't manage. So I would not be surprised if, uh, you know, um, uh, India would make a U-turn and do that because India per se, if you, especially if you look at rural India, it's a decentralized architecture. So it's a blockchain mm. type of architecture. And if you can interconnect them through the internet and make payments through a, a, a digital rupiah, I mean, it would be a killing out there. Wow. Will it be a killing for banks too? Because, you know, the big question with CBDC is always uh, you create a direct connection or a direct relation between the central bank and the people the same way that cash does. You know, with cash, the, the main difference between cash and, and your bank account is that uh, a cash is a direct claim for purchasing power that you have against the central bank. Uh, so today, if you want something digital, you go to your commercial bank partner or your, 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 vendor, your provider, but then it's no longer the central bank. You know, you have this capability for banks to provide to provide you services. Uh, as soon as the central bank creates a CBDC and puts you in, puts it in your hands, potentially you say, well, why would I need banks? You know, I, I can now pay, I can now store value, I can, I don't need these banks. So, do yeah. you think it would be a killing also for the banking industry? No, because that brings us back to the question: Are banks needed, or actually, what is yeah. what is a, what is a bank? I think some uh, storing value and transferring value from A to B doesn't create value per se. So uh, mm. this could be part of the infrastructure. Nobody has said that payments should be a banking's task forever. This could go away to central banks or even to infrastructure provider because I would say this, is, this could even be not a bank activity anymore. You know, uh, just remind mm. yourself of, you know, the credit card industry. If you want to buy something and you want to pay later, these short-term uh, loans between transacting and paying was originally also a task that was performed by banks. But this completely mm -hmm. moved away out of banks to new industry players called credit card institutes, like the Visa, the MasterCard, the American sure. Express. The same thing could happen to the, pay to the payments world. Who says that the bank is there to do payments? So if, if I could wish what my bank should do for me is not necessarily payments, but uh, because payment is just the base of, you know, storing and transferring without adding much value. The really value added services from a bank is helping me to allocate my money and put my money at work. And this is uh, a heavy, you know, consulting and, 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 and expertise heavy task that I still see at banks or bank-like institutions, uh, but is, is payments uh, an important bank task? I would say no, or not in the future. It could be infrastructure and central banks giving that services. It's, uh, it's, a, it's also a nice example that in Switzerland, uh, you know, many years ago, suddenly the Swiss Post was the largest, probably still is the largest payment provider uh, in Switzerland, and the post is not a bank. Doesn't have a banking license at all. That is true. That is true. Um, 
You know, we are moving towards, uh, you know, when I have a discussion with the bank today, uh, speaking about crypto already feels to be at the forefront of innovation. Uh, going to tokenization is even one step further. You're even beyond the forefront of innovation. Now, there is this huge padding change happening with decentralized finance or, or DeFi. We actually have a series of questions on, on this topic in, in the chat. Um, DeFi goes way beyond finance. It's, you know, it's called DeFi, but in fact, it's, it's not DeFi. It's more decentralized contractual relations in general. And uh, one that I'm extremely enthusiastic about and excited about is, uh, is about the decentralization of companies. If you think about it, a company is nothing more than a series of contracts. You have uh, shareholders that can vote to elect board members, board members that can vote to elect uh, executive board members, executives that can potentially touch a bit of the budget of the company. All of these things are nothing more than bunches of contracts and social norms and laws, which can be encoded into a smart contract. And we already see today many instances of this. There are incredibly successful distributed autonomous organizations on Ethereum where you would say, well, wow, I'm here facing well, a, a multi-billion dollar company, but this company is in no commercial register at all. It's not registered in Switzerland or, or nowhere. Do you think, and what do you think about the decentralization of much more than finance, actually going into any kind of contractual relationship? Yeah. Um, so I think the whole DeFi or smart contracts uh, is another dimension on the blockchain. And I think it will take even more time. Let's digest first the entry <laughs> before we go to the main meal and before we go to the dessert. Um, uh, so um, I think the concepts are really fantastic and overwhelming if you think of smart contracts and uh, further decentralization. I think the internet has the potential to create big things in a decentralized uh, architecture. Um, look at Wikipedia. I mean, um, it's, it's the hugest, uh, it's the largest uh, encyclopedia has wiped out the Encyclopedia Britannica and Brockhaus and all the others with an uh, extreme decentralized uh, uh, model. Um, but we are human beings and human beings tend to create families and, and herds and uh, states and, you know, um, we are social animals that make that made us survive because one single uh, person is weak a family is stronger a country is even stronger so we um, create any you know conglomerates we try to make clubs we uh, we try to make companies we try to make states and it's always to be in a group uh, with a larger cohesion with a common common goals and common dreams. And that will always exist because together you can move more than alone. Now the internet, um, and we are experiencing this right now, Adrian, that we are talking together as if we would sit in the same room. Yes. So we have, we have a bond and a connection, even if we are you know, miles away from each other. So the internet and technology has made that possible to have this cohesion in groups socialize together with a shared common goal to achieve things. And, and, and I think these smart contracts will has to enable still to have virtual companies 
because these are, you know, groups sharing the same dream, the same vision, the same goal, even if the people are decentralized sitting somewhere, uh, you know, also we have uh, spoken, outspoken or, or not outspoken, written or unwritten contract, if you want so. And, you know, the internet can, with technology, support these, these bonds, which are, uh, which are very important. So I would not say that companies will disappear, but you can start collaborating and contracting together, building, you know, groups uh, together um, uh, and virtual companies or virtual governance bodies you know, going after the same uh, goal, the same purpose together with uh, the usage of, of, of technology. Speaking about building companies, you are a serial entrepreneur. So it's not just about Avaloc. You reminded us that you founded multiple companies, invested. Uh, what are the key learnings uh, from, from the Avaloc and the other you know, success stories you went through or potentially failures that you went through? Uh, and uh, would you give, what could you give as an inspirational uh, you know, advice to tech founders or CEOs uh, that are trying to create something today. Yeah. So what I just said, the bonding between people to create greater things is finding a common goal, finding a common dream, finding a purpose. You know, um, hundred years ago, what brought people together is the building. You have a large building and it says IBM or whatever, or Novartis on top of it. And you, you went to a building. When you said, I go to my office or I go to my company, you meant the building. The building might disappear. Right now, I'm working for 12 companies, sharing my time and my brain amongst 10 companies. So the, it's not about the buildings anymore. But I wa want, what I like is to be associated with the 12 purposes um, of these companies. This is what brings us together. I mean, you and me, we want to um, enable the banks to democratize 200 trillion unbankable asset classes, make, the, uh, uh, make it accessible to normal people, and we want to make the banking system even more efficient than today. This is what binds us together. And so to have a clear purpose um, uh, is the first thing that has to be right to bond and align people's forces. If you don't clarify that, one might pull one direction, the other might pull in the other uh, direction and uh, annihilate forces. If the goal uh, is clear, you have the first, um, you know, the first homework is done. You have a shared dream, for, uh, a shared objective. Uh, the other thing is, you know, um, just don't forget the human factor. I learned that, um, you know, not in the first two years where you sit in the room with seven people, um, things like culture and, um, you know, being human came naturally. If you do that with 3,000 people, you suddenly have to make tacit knowledge, explicit knowledge. It's the same with strategy, you know. Um, the first couple of years, the strategy was developed in my belly and everybody knew about it. When you work with 100, 200 people, uh, you want to buy in. You want an understanding for the strategy. You have to write it down. You have to speak about it. You have to you know, make it visible and, uh, and 
able to experience. The same is with culture. You know, a culture in a family, nobody writes down. Uh, a culture in a company, you have to write down. You have to make it explicit that you can, you know, um, give an additional angle for people to bound and have a rule set which is stronger than writing thousand rules if you know the culture is clear this can you know make thousands of rules obsolete and you know where where there is a rule there is somebody who can break it so <laughs> culture culture is a very very important topic and i must say you cannot start early enough to talk about culture culture is what type of people do you want to have in your company how do you want to collaborate with each other what is important to you and what not? And what are behaviors you want to see and to foster? What are behaviors you dislike and you don't want to see? Because this will give an identity, an additional identity into the company. And people that don't fit will be exposed before you can even fire them. And it will be an attractor to people that fit into the company. So culture is all a purpose and culture are uh, two very important things. Then, of course... Today, I look at the company as I look at the complex piece of software. It's about having the right architecture and engineering. And you have to engineer your company. And this is, you know, beside purpose, culture, uh, and people, the, the organizational structure, organizational development is important. And as the thing grows, the architecture has to be constantly adapted. So I cannot take the organizational structures of Novartis and put it on little Metaco, uh, you would die. On the, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, with the Metaco structures, you would never be able to run Novartis. So you see, as the company matures and gets bigger, you have to find the right architecture for it in terms of governance, company structure, collaboration processes, etc. So don't forget the engineering aspect of a company. And as an engineer, uh, you know, we are actually good at finding architectures so use the same skills to architect your company as you use to architect your software hmm. is it only about architecture your company or is the private life also important i guess you know you speak about the buying of your employees and colleagues <laughs> i guess the buying of your wife and your children potentially is also relevant so how would you say your private life influenced or help or potentially made it harder for you to uh, to be successful in that field yeah you know Again, there you have similar patterns. You have a different purpose, living your family life uh, uh, than living a business life in, in a company X, Y, or Z. Uh, it's about purpose, it's about structures, it's about communication, it's about bonding. Um, you know, there are similar patterns. Uh, companies like a small organization, you know, with whatever three to five people, actually, it's like a startup. But um, uh, as a family member, you, you also see that you have to manage this as well. And, <laughs> and, and, and family is actually nice because uh, it shows that there are forms of, government, of governance that are not necessarily hierarchical. And this is what we are learning also in the corporate lives today, that you know, uh, the control and command type of leadership style is becoming obsolete um you know you to be a leader is to be a servant i like the world the word of 
um, uh, servant leadership. So if you work for me, or if I'm your boss, actually you don't work for me, I work for you. I must organize and you know, set the field that you as an expert that might know in your area more than me, that um, uh, you can perform and the company gets the maximum out of you. That does not mean that I tell you what to do, how to do it, whatever. Most of this, you know, even better. So it's the same in the family, you know, everybody has its role and perform and we have to orchestrate collaboration much more than a hierarchical, um, uh, you know, leadership style say, I tell you what to do and you do it and you, you shut up. So uh, that's nice, you know, the, these parallels that, you know, uh, running a family is not a command and control thing. And we are now, even in large organizations, finding out new leadership uh, uh, styles. Now, my biggest problem is that a day has only 24 hours. Um, and I cannot add the night to it. <laughs> so uh, you have, of course, to, to, to balance and to make a portfolio allocation. As you are used to make portfolio management for your money, you should make um, a portfolio management for your most valuable asset, which is your time. So how do you allocate your time to these different things or different passions you have? How much time do I allocate in sport? to family, to music, or to your hobbies, and, 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 and to your um, uh, uh, business life, and uh, uh, find the balance. But for me, balance has never meant that I work less, because for me, work is life, and life is work. As an entrepreneur, you cannot stop your brain, and when your brain is working, you cannot distinguish between business, family, leisure, and life. It all comes together, and that's probably the the best place to be that uh, you know you enjoy um, uh, every moment of your life no matter whether you are doing sports you have some quality time with your children or you have some quality time with your colleagues sharing the same dream to you know improve something on this planet Francisco thank you very much um, I think it was a great uh, great uh, experience uh, I'm very happy to know more about it I hope that's also the case for our audience. I would like to say just before we, we stop that uh, the next episodes of Metaco Talks will be on February 19th at 3 p.m. CET with uh, Mike McGlone, Senior Community Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. So please register and we'll be happy to have another episode after this great discussion with Francisco Fernandez. Thank you again. Thank you guys also for listening or, and for your patience. I wish everybody a nice weekend and see you soon.